The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhez on SAFM. 2139 is the time and the conversation now is about wildfires, specifically those taking place in the northern part of the continent, Tunisia and Algeria, now being affected. North Africa is experiencing a severe heat wave. Several cities in nearby Tunisia recording temperatures in excess of 49 degrees Celsius. Now, Reuters reports that as flames spread over Algeria, the death toll has increased to 34, including 10 troops on Monday yesterday. The fires in Tabarka near the Algerian border have significantly extended due to the strong winds. The Tunisian civil defense authorities announced in a statement yesterday. As a result, now residents had to be evacuated in both private and naval guard vessels. And the conversation absolutely then has to turn to, is this in any way nature's response to the climate crisis that the world has to continuously grapple with? Well, let's have this conversation now with Professor Tafaudza Mabaudi, I beg your pardon, climate change and food systems experts based at UKZN, currently now in Canada enjoying some well-needed break. Tafadzo, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us, Prof. Uh, Good evening, and thanks for having me. Let's talk about these fires and whether or not there's a correlation scientifically anyway with regard to, ultimately, global warming. Yes, so we now know definitely uh, the the World Weather Attribution Initiative, which is a group of scientists that, uh, you know, run these models to determine whether a particular event is actually climate-induced, have confirmed today that the current heat waves being experienced uh, in Europe, North America, as well as China, are indeed climate change-induced. So so there is definitely a correlation there. And, and, And the patterns, particularly in European cities and North African cities, of even the last two to three years of that record temperatures are indeed going on or being recorded. I mean, there was a heat wave in the UK recently. France as well was not immune from that, if not in the last summer, the summer before that, getting temperatures in excess of what is just normal. Now, as these phenomena take place in the context of climate change, are we seeing the necessary responses from the state and state actors to what really now is, if not a crisis, will soon be a crisis, which is manifested by what very recently we had our own firefighters in Canada fighting. You know for a fact it's a matter of time. Summer in Australia, you're going to get wildfires. The same is true in California, in the United States. And in our very own country, you know, summer, Western Cape, fires. Mm. Are international bodies and domestic governments treating this now with the necessary urgency this is a long question but for instance food security is predicated on the integrity of land and the vegetation not burning the flora as well as the fauna just as much dependent on the integrity of the land are the necessary conversations being had with the necessary urgency that they deserve I think we we need to balance two things in answering this question. Mm. The conversations have, have been had. Uh, we, we've got COP. People have the conversations every year. Uh, pronouncements and commitments are made on an annual basis. So the conversations are being had. They've been had. Uh, what has lacked 
uh, are the commitments and the follow through when commitments are made. So that, that's where we've lacked. So the conversations have been happening, but the commitments have not always materialized. And even when they do, they don't materialize at the scale that is really required to address the agency and the enormity of the climate crisis, if I may say so. So it's the same thing that our president Ramaphosa was raising in France recently mm. when he pointed out that, you know, we, we gather, we talk, people make big pledges, but when it really comes to the crux of the matter, there is very little that becomes tangible uh, in that space. Now, the, the Algerian Interior Ministry, for instance, said it recorded 97 blazes fanned by fierce winds and extreme heat across 16 provinces. Now, when you talk about something like this and then you engage the climate crisis and then you start looking at the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, there clearly is a link between what happens by virtue of weather and whether there are sufficient responses to the conversations in the climate context, as you mentioned, COP, Conference of Parties. But when you look at, broadly speaking, in issues of international importance at a multilateral level, you can't have this sort of conversation and this sort of response outside the context of no poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, and especially clean water and sanitation responding specifically to weather-based issues, affordable and clean energy industrial innovation yeah. and infrastructure. So the, the, the SDGs then become especially threatened by just one phenomena that has got such universal impact and import. So I, I like the way you put it, that you know climate change is a universal impact uh, across a range of sectors and activity. Uh, there's already been a report published by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where they've already stated that we are not on track to achieving the SDGs by 2030. Mm. So already we are not on track. And of particular concern is Africa, the continent where, which we call home. Because uh, we, you know, when we talk globally and we talk about Africa in particular, the situation is dire in Africa. Just last week, there was a paper published in Nature, which was saying that because of climate change and other factors, the water quality situation in Africa is going to worsen now going into the future with serious implications on human health, poverty, and economic development. So there are broader implications around sustainable development. There are broader implications around lives, livelihoods, and the health of the general public. Uh, so we need to think of climate change within that project context of the range of activities and sectors that it affects and then come up with integrated climate change responses that then look at how well can we build resilience across these different sectors in a way that is synergistic mm. as you said yourself that when we've got a fire it's not just a fire because it's actually also damaging biodiversity, the flora and fauna, you know, we're losing biodiversity. And that is worsening an already bad situation in terms of biodiversity loss. You've got people in livelihoods, you know, who are not going to be able to recover afterwards. It's not everyone who is insured who's going to go and, and put in a claim after a fire and get back what they lost. The majority, especially in Africa, don't have insurance. You've got people who get displaced 
like we saw when we had the floods in KZN. Mm -hmm. And by and large, a lot of those people were displaced then are still displaced now. You know, the conversation might have moved and changed for a lot of us, but the realities for the people who are affected don't move and change quite as fast as the conversations do. So we need to be mindful of that people dynamic as well. Let's domesticate this conversation. Sure, the entry point is Algeria and what's happening in North Africa and wildfires would be the um, subject matter. But, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of examples, I mean, specifically, and one that many can relate to are the recent floods in parts of the con in the country, but specifically KZN. How do we risk rate, as a result, nature's response to the climate crisis? We are seeing wildfires. We are seeing floods, even floods at times where you don't expect it to even be a rainy season. Now there are earth tremors in parts of South Africa, and many South Africans can't quite relate with earthquakes. Extended periods of the drought, extreme cold. We had a previous guest engaged just how very cold Johannesburg is. And I mean, if the country's anything to go by two weeks ago, it was extremely cold. What should national planning for stability purposes, whatever stability in this context might mean, be insofar as it won risk rate what the phenomena are that can beset a nation back and what would, in response to that risk um, planning, be the risk mitigation strategy and resource deployment? Does my mm. question make sense? Okay. No, your question makes very good sense. So first and foremost, this is not new science. Uh, it's, it's things that have been done that are there in government. Probably so more the, the first the, the projections that government has are actually quite up to date in terms of the extremes that we're looking at. So the science is there. Uh, so we need to be able to understand the climate risks. What are the climate risks that we are looking at? We know there's going to be increasing temperatures. We know we're going to have weather extremes such as drought, such as floods. And, and we know all of these risks uh, have associated with particular hazards. So we know if it is temperatures, drought, there's the hazard of fire and so forth, uh, floods, you know, increased rainfall intensity and so forth, the hazard equals floods and so forth. So we know the risks, we know the hazards. We also know the exposure in terms of where the areas where these risks and hazards are likely to happen. So we know the exposure zones. We know who is exposed in terms of being located in those areas. We know the vulnerability of the people to say, okay, this is the risk and hazard in this particular area of KwaZulu-Natal, for example. Who is exposed? It's people in low-lying areas and informal communities and, you know, living on steep slopes and things like that. They are vulnerable. Why are they vulnerable? Because they have low adaptive capacity. They lack the resources to change their circumstances and they cannot adapt as quickly. What do we need to do? That's where the challenge comes in now. That a lot of these things require big investments, big financial investments. Uh, for example, we need to redesign and come up with climate sensitive spatial planning so that we do not have people being located in harm's way. We don't have people living in areas that are known to flood because they're already living in a, in a flood line or below a flood line. But surely so the environmental guaranteed. impact assessments of any form 
of infrastructure that disrupts nature for how it presents itself as nature. Surely that is the value of an environmental impact assessment. When you talk about spatial planning, there would be areas in that municipality or in that provincial demarcation that can only ever be used for certain activity and by necessary implication can never be used for certain activity. But for instance, look look in Cape Town. It's a rainy season in Cape Town. It's already happened and I'm almost willing to bet everything I have that as soon as we have rains for longer than 48 hours in Cape Town, there will be people who unfortunately are at the mercy of the elements due to flooding. And this is a perennial issue. I know it's going to happen because I've seen it happening for the longest time. It, it keeps it's happening the... because, as I said, you, you, but you, you establish that, okay, we've got a 1 in 100 or a 1 in 50 flood line. But for reasons of our history and poverty, the dislocation of people, uh, the fact, the inequality. We've got a lot of serious poverty, inequality issues, particularly in South Africa, which means the poor become disproportionately affected because they are the ones who are forced to come and live in these areas, mostly because these areas, because they are below the flood line, there's no one living there for very specific reasons that they are not demarcated as residential or for any other purpose. And also because usually those places are are within walking distance to their places of work. They're earning so little that commuting is not viable. So living somewhere where you can just walk across the road and get to your place of work makes sense from a financial standpoint. You know, putting up a shack is an inexpensive structure Mm. to put up. You can put it up in a day. But structurally, it is not sound. It doesn't have a proper foundation. So you're at risk. But what puts people at risk and in harm's way is poverty and inequality. So we've got those issues that as as we address climate change and we are putting investments into infrastructure development, resilient infrastructure, we are building resilience in our ports, our energy system, our food systems. There has to be the people part also that we say in doing these sort of investments, how do we also ensure that we move with the people, take the people out of poverty, narrow the Tavazo, inequality. Tavazo, let me come back to that point. So I that have to take a break. Tavazo, I'm going to have to engage the people and how people need to be moved and not just physically moved, but I mean people sort of empowered with the kind of information that would allow them, open, close quote, make better decision or more sustainable decisions. Let's have that conversation immediately after this break. International Affairs with Songhezo Mabete. It's a conversation on international affairs following the fires that are currently wreaking havoc in North Africa and in Algeria. So far, the death toll is 34 and is only subject to increase. And in the result, we're having implications for how nations respond to increasing weather-based global phenomena that, without the necessary planning, can quite frankly spell the doom of certain civilizations and people. We know that the ice caps that are melting do threaten, for instance, the islands in the Pacific as well as in the Caribbean because they are increasing the water table or the water. They are drowning certain, certain civilizations. And this is all what happens when 
perhaps not strong enough impetus and emphasis in place on issues of the kind that global warming now is forcing us to respond to. It manifests in fires. On another day, it will be floods. But let's talk about domestic responses and how South Africa specifically can learn from what is happening both within itself and outside and the value of engaging people. You mentioned something about we need to move people, and I really want to take the conversation insofar as it relates to against the fact that poverty is so good at recycling itself. I mean, when you talk about the fact that uh, a shack structure is easy to put up and it's usually put up for the purposes of convenience, say proximity to work and other spaces where people might get opportunity, that's only just ticking one box out of many other boxes. Just the hygiene of it, how they are spatially planned. In seldom have access to an opportunity for one to even grow a vegetable garden from a food sustainability perspective or just a clean environment because it's not often that one lives alone. They normally, um, who shack dwellers anyway, will, would, would live with their families and then you're talking about children and then you have to have a conversation about water and sanitation and access to recreational spaces as well as formal spaces like healthcare facilities and education. So being in proximity to work is only ticking one box. The question that I really do want to engage, how do we in the South African context empower people with information and knowledge so that they make decisions that better serve them? Okay, thanks. Uh, so there are various, uh, speaking from the, the World Meteorological Organization has launched what is called Early Warnings for All. And it's an initiative that is basically saying climate information regarding weather and disasters should be made available to everyone at the lowest level. Mm. And we in South Africa, I know the South African uh, Weather Service is, is, has jumped on board in terms of wanting to implement that. We've got international organizations such as the International Water Management Institute and others who are in the space of early warnings. So we need now to, to disseminate them. Because, for example, I was having a conversation with people from the Weather Service today. And they were saying, you know, last year when the uh, floods happened in Durban, we mm. did issue out warnings. You know, we, we sent them out, but people were still affected because it didn't get to the person who was at risk, who was affected. So we need to find a way of disseminating early warnings right down to the ground level make sure that everyone receives those early warnings right at the community level you should get a message that says you know there's a flood you know in the same way that you get a message saying there's a hailstorm approaching Correct. move your car into a safe zone mm. and and you know that when it says a hailstorm move your car into undercover you know what to do so again at that level we need to have that sort of awareness and capacitation of people to say this is the risk when we send a message that will say there's there's a flood that's going to happen and this is the lead time for a flood you, you need to evacuate when you evacuate same as when there's a fire warning in your building you know when you evacuate you just get out you don't grab your bag you don't grab your laptop you just grab yourself and leave you know, so it's, it's that level of awareness and building effective response capabilities in people. It's also ensuring that we communicate these messages in a language that everyone understands. 
very important. In people's own languages, integrated, you know, with indigenous knowledge systems, so that we also talk about it in a manner that people understand and appreciate. And we, we build the response capability so that, yes, when we communicate it, they know that this is what it means and this is the sort of action I should take to protect myself in this situation. You mentioned something so important so late in the day, the epistemology of transfer of information using indigenous knowledge systems. Such a crucial point. So late, unfortunately, I cannot take it any further. But Tafadzo, thank you so much for your time. Certainly do appreciate that. Let's wait for you to get back from your holiday in Canada and we can have more of these conversations. Much appreciated, brother. Thanks very much, man. Cheers. Take care, Professor Tafadzwa Mabaudi, climate change and food systems experts operating from the University of KwaZulu-Natal. It's 22 hours and the man who will take over after the news is the guy who's going to give me tickets for Saturday. South Africa against Argentina, Oliver Dixon. <laughs>